Hello. Welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum, the podcast where we, the storytellers at the Leprechaun Museum, get around a microphone, start talking and telling stories. I'm Emily. I'm Nisha. And today we're going to be talking about Bieltona. Uh-huh. Uh, so, a question I've never asked you before, Nisha. Oh. We definitely haven't tried to record this six times. What are you talking about? <laughs> what is Bieltona? So... Bealtaine, it's one of the major festivals in both the Irish mythological and folk traditions. It's one of the cross-quarter festivals, which were said to divide the year. Into, so basically the old Irish era was divided into two halves, warm half and cold half. All right, that makes sense. And then the, the other two, and each of those changeovers is celebrated with a festival. So warmest time and coldest time. Exactly. And yeah. so obviously the coldest time is with Samhain or Halloween as we know it now. And then the other cross-quarter festivals divide the warm and cold month, uh, cold months in half. And you've got Imbolc, which comes in the 1st of February. And you've got August, uh, the 1st of August is Lunasa, named from the god Lu. And then the one that we're mainly concerned with today, Beatna, which is the start of the warm season. Sometimes associated with male energy, and right. something I was reading in recently, saying that... Is there a, is there a god, Bielta? Uh, there's... There was a... F- Theory eh, that comes from a very old glossary from the medieval Irish literature of mm-hmm. Cormac's glossary, which is notoriously inaccurate. That said, it was to celebrate the god Baal. Who comes I, the... I've, I've never heard of Baal. Yeah, it comes from the Canaanite tradition. Uh, it's, from, uh-huh. it's from the Bible. And mm, uh, right. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's the Christian monks screwing up the Irish myths again. <laughs> But, well, inventing some interesting stories. Oh, again, the synchronization between the two is fascinating. But it is I mean, medieval literature, early forms of fan fiction. Pretty much, pretty much. Like, if there was a god associated with Bealtaine, there's there's some evidence that it was Ondagda, the All Father, mm-hmm. the corpulent leader of the gods. <laughs> I I could see Dagda being because I think of sort of Bealtaine as you've got fires, you've got food mm-hmm. you've got a bit of fun and wherever there's fun and food and drink the Dagda's sure to be around somewhere bound to be there there's a party going on you're going yeah. to join in and again it was quite a it was a party it's beginning the warm half so both the same as Samhain it's a time for gathering people together it's a time for storytelling it's a time for feasting but unlike Bealtaine it's celebrating the warm months Bealtaine is celebrating the warm months yeah so it's so yeah. unlike Samhain, it's celebrating the warm months, so you're going to be... It's a bit more positive in some ways. <laughs> Less spooky. But again, it, on the spooky subject, it's still a time when the veils between the fairy the she and our world are very blurred, and the fairies were always out and about. Ah, yeah. Generally, uh, from what I can tell from the folk tradition, they seem to have been slightly more positive on May Day. So if you're going by like the co- Scottish court systems, these would be the, the seedy fae you'd be dealing yeah. with. whereas unseedy would be more active than Samhain. <laughs> uh, obviously, it, there's hints of it being a fertility festival. Uh, most of the festivals seem to be linked to fertility. Most of Irish myths seem to be linked to fertility. Fertility or death. Those are the, the two big things people yeah. are interested in. Oh, yeah. But in fairness, they are the two certainties of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and again, survived going from the mythological tradition up to folk tradition and would have been influenced by the, well, broadly British, but more specifically English May Day celebrations. Oh, yeah, Maypoles. Maypoles, and ribbons, and uh, young, very attractive young people wandering off into the woods for some reason. <laughs> Who knows why? But so, gathering nuts in May? 
gathering nuts in the forest. Even, even though May, nuts don't bloom in May. No. So you're looking for something else. And on blooming, uh, can since the time of, since it was a delicate time of year for supernatural activity, uh, you'd gather up yellow flowers, All right. which were seen as being protective against the fairies. So say so you'd get some daffodils, you'd strew them out on your the front step of your house to make sure they couldn't get inside. Uh, but don't fairies, they particularly like Bulacombui, the, the little yellow boy, the ragwort flower. They do, but I've, that, that, that seems to live up to other stuff I found in the folk tradition, that fairies can simultaneously be, attra- be associated with a, a plant or an object and yet also find it repugnant. So, a bit like humans, you can you can love something but hate it at the yeah. same time. Uh, like the one that always strikes guilty pleasures. Sort of strikes to me is the old rowan tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading something recently that the apparently the two Dadanan in one source were said to eat rowan berries, mm. but also the rowan tree will keep the fairies away. Even yeah, though it's I've, I've I've come across a lot of stories where the rowan tree is is protection, particularly protection against witches. Yeah, yeah, and it, sort of female issues. Mm-hmm. But it's it's one of the three one of the trees that will protect you. And again, if they've got any sort of magic with them, you you it's like the fight fire with fire. You fight magic with magic. Yeah. Speaking of uh, fighting fire with uh-huh. fire, you you light fire. You light fires. Uh, you, it's seen as a fire celebration, and because it was ushering in the warm months, there. Now this is according to uh, one of the live texts about the lives of St. Patrick, mm-hmm. that the last pagan king, high king of Ireland, Lyra, was lighting a fire to celebrate Beautina, and it just so happened to be Easter as well. Oh, what a coincidence! I know! Isn't that oh. amazing? And then, of it's course... It's almost like Easter moves around a lot. Yeah, that's a funny thing with those moving feasts. Well, I suppose Easter goes by a lunar calendar rather yeah. than a solar calendar. So it's like but again, the cross-quarter feasts are also based on the lunar calendar. Are they based on lunar calendar? Uh, I thought they were more solar because they were like solstice. and. The, the, there's some theories that Ireland was lunar calendar, uh, but then if you look at any of the 18th century texts, they were trying to find solar gods all over mm. the place. And I, my dad is convinced that we operated under both a solar and lunar calendar. That would kind of fit with us. I'm not late, I'm just going by the other calendar. Mm-hmm. Any excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... But on the fires, so you, to celebrate the May Day, you'd light a big communal bonfire, and generally the fire was like the heart of the home. Mm. It kept you safe from all the terrors. You'd always keep your fire lit. You'd never let the fire go out. Except on May Day. So you'd, uh, according to some traditions, you extinguish the fire, and then you went to communal bonfires around the area, and you'd light, you'd take a little bit of that fire back to your house, and you'd relight it for that year, and then you'd never let that one go out. And if you had a fire lighting in your house, you never gave any of it. Yeah, Mark was actually telling me about that whole, on May Day, Bealtaine, you don't let anything go out of your house. No. Because it has some sort of magic thing people can work evil spells so you don't even let the smoke go out of your chimney yeah it, it was seen that you could let all the prosperity would go with whatever came out of your house so if you wanted to have a good year you basically had to be incredibly stingy and refuse that kind of goes against the whole you know getting together communal I, I suppose it's you're, you're assembling communally and it's communal food rather than your food yeah it's, it's more of a personal property you can't let go away mm. Even though, uh, during, shortly after famine times, uh, it became a May Day tradition for young boys and girls to go around the neighbourhood asking for change. And that so was... sort of trick-or-treating twice a year? Yeah. 
but this time you're just you know, asking for money. Just money. You, As, you've grown up a little bit, you know, cash is king. Ah, but even when we were younger, we knew yeah, that. Yeah, we knew that. Like, <laughs> do I, I, brief digression to sound. I remember one year we were going, we went around all the neighbourhood twice. Twice? We changed costume halfway through the night. Oh, clever! And by the time clever. we got around to like the end of the house, it was so late at night, they're like, I'm sorry, we don't have any sweets left. Will you take money? Yes. So, yeah, well, of course we'll take money. That's how you get more sweets. <laughs> clever children. Exactly. Oh, children have it. Children have it sorted. And again, on personal experiences, like we, my family would light a bonfire in our back garden and we would take turns leaping through the bonfire. And uh, what? Yeah. So again, it was kind of seen as a blessing. You'd, you'd jump through the, you'd either jump over a small bonfire or uh, usually you'd have two of them lit. And the main tradition was you drive cattle through it. I can see that going wrong in no way. Oh no, God. <laughs> How would that ever go wrong? But it was because uh, back in, it was back from when we uh, practiced transhumance. So you'd have the cattle grazing in one section during the winter, then you'd move them to the summer pastures. And as you were moving them, you'd pass them through the fire because the change ever happened on the Altona. Mm. And my dad was telling me uh, two days ago that here's the practical side of it. He was saying that as you're moving them from the higher pastures, because generally, uh, sorry, from the lower pastures up to the higher pastures, because they're more windswept, mm. they're not suitable during the winter. Yeah. But you're moving them, you bring them into a new environment and all the horrible bug life. Ah, you want to Gap kill it So you're putting them through the fire so their coat starts smelling of smoke, and obviously flies don't like smoke. Yeah. They'll give them, they'll avoid them for long enough to go, oh, well, they're actually part of the environment here, they've been here for ages, as opposed to mm. fresh meat, let's eat them. So uh, when they say, you know, purifying it, there's a practical. There is a practical, because again, it's back to the cures. Because it was a time to, it was time to make sure the cattle didn't suffer disease and you wouldn't give away the prosperity of your house to avoid, say, something like illness or sickness coming on you. Well, speaking of cures, we're going to talk about Mm. cures in a bit. But uh, first we have some questions, some magical questions. I'm going to shake the box. If anyone has any questions they would like to ask us, uh, you can tweet us, you can Instagram us, you can come in and put a question in our pink box. Carrier pigeon, think deeply in your night dreams. Uh, Go into a room with a mirror and a candle and chant three times. Mm -hmm. So what do you got for us? So at what point does a prophecy become a curse? At the point which it inconveniences you. So pretty much right away from a lot of the curses. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm just mentally thinking through on Irish folklore. Generally, when there's a prophecy, it's bad. I'm just thinking Deirdre of the Sorrows. Yeah, oh. and I'm talking to Anisha about exactly, this. Exactly, exactly. Well, the instant it was uttered, it was like, oh, this is going to be bad news. And it's like that old self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Would Deirdre have been so lonely as to basically abduct Anisha, if you ask me? If she hadn't been forced to live alone away from other people. And been told she was going to marry King Conor Magnessa, who exactly. was a... And if they hadn't said that people would kill each other, kill them, kill each other over who got to marry her... Yeah. Then... Well, they killed each other over who got to marry her. Exactly. It's awesome. And even on King Conor Magnessa, he, was, uh, he wasn't quite prophesied to become king. No. But his, uh, his mother sort of decided even before his conception, I'm going to have a son and he's going to be king. Oh, yeah. I, I love Nessa. She is sort of she's like the pushy stage mother, but like, with sovereignty. Yeah, she's the she is the absolute power behind the throne. So the uh, the thing with uh, even before he's conceived, she was um, walking one day and she she met a druid and asked him, "What is today good for?" And the druid replied, "Well, today is good for conceiving a son." Of course, he'd say which that. is a chatter line and a half. <laughs> and 
she got pregnant and they were they were travelling somewhere, yeah. I can't remember, but they were crossing a river and she started to go into labour. And the druid said, oh, God, it's a pity you couldn't hold on a bit longer because the, the child who will be born tomorrow is destined to be the king of the world. Mm. And so uh, Nessa decided, well, her son was going to be king of the world. So yep. she sat on a rock <laughs> and basically crossed her legs yeah. so that her son will be born on the day the king of the world was born. I, it's one of my favourite birth tales. Which is just... Oh, God. And, and, and she basically goes on to make sure her son does become king um, through treachery and trickery. But exactly. she's a woman who's decided, I'm going to make my own prophecies. Yeah. Which do, in a way, become a little bit of a curse. But they do. For it's... everyone around her. Exactly. It's like the, there is a real blurred line once you get to the fringes of both curses, prophecies and Gesha. Yeah, Gesha is a weird thing. I, I'm sure we have questions in yeah. the box oh, yeah. on the... But what is a Gesh, Nisha? Nisha? Aha. So, well, again, it's... I've heard it best described as a mixture between magical compulsion and prohibition. So, especially in... It's, I find them most prevalent in the Ulster cycle. Like, they are mm. in the others, but... Everyone in Ulster seemed to have a gesh or two. Oh yeah, so you weren't anyone yeah. unless you had a sometimes gesh. Sometimes you're born with a gesh. Sometimes you get a gesh as you go on through life. Sometimes you have them thrust upon you. But most of, most of them, some of them were born. So they were just an inherent quality. Mm. Some of them came with jobs. Kings had an inordinate amount of mm. gesh. And and you ever think that you could just grab someone by the ears and put a gesh on them? Both uh, Deirdre and Gronya do that. It seemed I've never found a man. Putting a so it seems to be a womany thing. And do women have geshes? It mostly seems to be men who have geshes. That is a fair point. I actually don't. Although admittedly, most of the stories where men are going off and doing things they shouldn't be. Well, yeah. In fairness, maybe the women had gesha, but they, they just didn't write them down. Well, they didn't need to because they just heard the gesha once. Was mm, I won't do that. <laughs> As opposed, I've got to... enough trouble. I've got King Connor Magnessa coming after me. Exactly, and if not King Connor, somebody else. Mm wasn't a good time. And we're getting very yeah, distracted. Exactly. So more questions. questions. <clears throat> are leprechauns real? They are real folklore. Yes. 100% they, they are, are real folklore. That's my answer all the time. <laughs> and give another one. How big is the giant leprechaun? Please reply. Um, uh, are you talking about Seamus in the gift shop? I think they must be talking about Seamus. Right, well, I, I often say Seamus is a six-foot-tall leprechaun, mm-hmm. if you include his hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's pretty much standing exactly at my height with the hat, so that would pan through. Yeah, Seamus, for those of you who haven't visited the museum, when you visit the museum and we tell you various stories about traditional folklore and legends, and sort of very much steering away from the cheesy dressed in green image, we then have a little bit of a joke at the end. We have Seamus. He's next to the exit. You have to pass by him to get out. <laughs> He is a sort of giant stuffed teddy bear leprechaun. Mm-hmm. He's dressed in green. And the story goes, he was rescued from the airport. <laughs> or at least that's, that's what I heard. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, I heard that Tom was passing through the airport and they were getting rid of him from some tourism thing and he, he rescued him. On that, uh, another leprechaun airport related story. That's what my dad told me again. Uh, there was a man, he's come over here from America and he, he was going, trying to get through security. And he had this big, big bag with him. And the security guard is pointing A little the bit bag. suspicious. Yes, he goes up and says, what's in the bag? I can't tell you. No, no, seriously, what's in the bag? Okay, looks around shiftily and goes, right, come here. It's a leprechaun. <laughs> I caught him. And I want to bring him home. And the man's like, oh, seriously, it's a leprechaun. Can I, can I have a look? He's like, no, no, no. If I open that up, he'll be out, he'll be gone. I'll never catch him again. I've worked really hard to get him. He's like, oh, please, can I just... Look, tell you what. If you just open up a tiny little crack, just enough for me to peek inside... If I keep my eyes on him, you won't be able to move. So just give him a little peek, then close it again, and you can take him on board. 
I said, that's a fair deal. So gets, gets the security guard to come over, shifty, opens up the bag, and the security guard looks in and screams, my God, let him go. That's our president. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. <sighs> the grand himself. Oh. I, I, now, do, I do love Michael D. Higgins. Yeah. I especially love that he defeated three dragons. He did. And back to in the, the election. topic. Yeah, he was also the first leader of the country to light the fires on the hill of Ushnok for Bialtana, uh oh, fabulous. in over a thousand years. Wow. And he did that, I think it was two years, three years ago now. Years are all blurring together. Oh. But yeah, so with a which I find Great. a nice little thing. Oh, lovely. And we managed to stay relevant. relevant. Ah, ooh, another fun question. Where do leprechauns live? Uh, wherever they can hang their hat. Uh, and far away from us. Yeah, basically. I, I heard a funny one that uh, leprechauns will never live within a 50 mile radius of a school because there's teachers there and they hate <laughs> teachers because teachers keep teaching children that they don't exist and that really offends them. Or teaching them that they can steal their gold. Exactly. Which is yeah, another issue. Oh, they don't even get started on the gold. Leprechaun traps. It just seems mean. Uh, where did the word pisho come from? You might have to ask a Gaelgor for yeah, that. You'd have to ask uh, a Gaelgor. I, I can't tell you where the word came from. I can tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. A pisho is just generally a, a superstition. So you superstition. I can say words. Yeah. I'm a professional words here. So you might hear uh, someone, particularly of an older generation, saying, "Oh, that's just a load of pishogs," which means that's a load yeah. of superstitious nonsense. It often gets associated with the sort of the nastier mm. superstitions, the sort of the, the small little curses and yeah. things you can put on people. I've also heard it as a term for the glamour that the fairies place on the changelings, oh. but rarely used when it's a baby changeling. It's when they're replacing like a, a fully grown adult. Oh, I, fully, I thought you like, sometimes I know they just grab like a rock or something and go, yeah. look like a baby. Yeah, it, it will be the same glamour, but mm. it's most often used to describe it when it's uh, when it's an adult that's been abducted. Mm. Usually the new, new bride, which is mm. very delicate time. If you... Sp- Bill Glitter, do you throw it over your shoulder? I think it's uh, that's on the salt tradition. I think so. Well, it, it glitter. You are the resident glitter I am expert. The re- I am, no, well, actually, the thing is, I, listeners, I like glitter. I often have glittery makeup, glitter in my hair, and sometimes I shed a little bit of glitter. <laughs> but the thing is, I've been finding glitter in the museum that doesn't originate with me. Oh, there's a lot of glitter in the museum. A lot of glitter. And most of it, I, I admit, comes from me. But n- I've been finding glitter that doesn't originate with me. Mm-hmm. So there is some other glitter merchant There are, there are A lot of our customers are also rather fond of glitter. So we do tend to them. have some sparkly customers. But then again, if they're traveling through spaces that, they can't, that the public can't access in the museum, mm. like hidden behind the scenes, it's probably Seamus, in fairness. And, Possibly, yeah. 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 Let's see. This is a nice big one. If you met a leprechaun, what would you ask them? I would ask them, what type of stories would they like us to be telling? Hmm. What are the stories they'd like to bring? Because we're always telling leprechaun stories. We're in a leprechaun museum. Hang on. Hmm. Uh, so I, I suppose I would like to know that we are telling your stories, stories about your people. What stories would you like us to be telling? Are you okay with us telling these stories? Oops. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, any leprechauns, uh, please do get in touch. Yeah, if you... What about you, Nisha? What about me? Hmm, it's a tough one. I, actually, you know what? I would ask them, flat out, whether or not... 
Chlorlacons and leprechauns are separate species. I want to get this sorted out. Oh, that's a good one. And and fear fear bollocks, not fear bollocks. Uh, fear Derek. Fear Derek's. Ah, the fear Derek. I think definitely has is a strong candidate for being a cousin. Whereas the Chlorlacons, for that now, are sometimes accused of being leprechauns on a bender. <laughs> and I read a really quite depressing but also humorous thing that somebody's theory is that Chlorlacons are former leprechauns mm-hmm. who are now on a bender but it's because somebody's stolen their pot of gold Aww. and that they're uh, unfortunately drinking themselves into oblivion Aww. because they're just didn't they have poor so don't do don't steal leprechauns gold you might turn them into chloracons yeah, like and then they will come to your basement and they will drink all of your milk and all of your other stuff as well exactly mad for the dairy and it's one final one or two questions uh, ooh I like this one what is your favourite space to tell stories? So, I adore telling them in the cottage. Oh, really? It's one of my favourite spaces because, again, that's where they would have happened. Yeah. But it's nice been. and intimate. Everyone's around and you can get people just wrapped. Arrogant here. They can, you can get them wrapped on your every word <laughs> and they can see you. Whereas mm. the other spaces, it can be difficult to see us yeah. or that you're fighting with the space itself. Yeah. Everything, to me, is helping you when you're in the cottage. When I first started working here at the museum, my favourite space to tell was in the well. Mm. Because it was uh, it's in this sort of moonlit forest. Uh, you've got a well which echoes, which can be great for certain sound mm-hmm. effects. Uh, it's at the end of the tours you've sort of been building. Mm-hmm. And it's a space where everyone can sit down. There's plenty of room. Uh, that was my favourite space. But now my favourite space to tell is actually the fairy hill. Really? Well, I find sometimes in the well, having... The actual well there, the sort of like pillar thing in you front of you. You kind of get locked on. You get there, locked yeah. into a certain space and you can't move. And also, if you sort of lean a certain way, you'll get this weird echo. Yeah. Which can be great, but sometimes you get it where you don't want it. Yeah. And the light in the forest, it can sometimes be great. Sometimes you can't see your hand in front of your face. Yeah. So my favourite space is the fairy hill because the fairy hill has this lovely, strange, mystical quality. Cause it you're, really does. You're in this hexagonal shaped room with these walls covered in bronze and there's mm. this sort of flickering underwatery light coming down and yeah. a low plinth with a Celtic knot made of lights in front of you. And I just find it, it's a very transporting space. You, yeah. you feel like you're somewhere else, but it's not specific enough to lock you into any one time or location. Yeah. It's an, in, it's an and interesting And it, it's, it's got a constant light so I can yeah. see everyone. I They can see me. Yeah. They can see each other if I'm pointing at them. In fairness, it is like to me. It is the, like the heart of the museum. I know it's it not the, the the middle room, but it feels like it the does. Heart. It does feel like it's the heart. And it it does have that nice kind of. It could be anywhere, but yeah. while being very specifically a fairy hill. Well, it's you. You walk into it from a sort of a, a rainbow and a pot of gold, mm. and then you walk out, and you're walking through through the Milky Way. Yeah. So you do. It is a, a very transporty and space. And it, it was a very eye-catching space. I remember mm. before I started actually working in the museum properly, when they kept me in the basement. When I'd be coming home of an evening, I'd be glancing at the uh, at our <clears throat> just cameras. High-tech security system here. Mm-hmm. And but there was always the room. It was like, oh, what is that place? That looks fascinating. It is. It's and it's. I, I love that that space and, and you actually, can do so much with it. Actually, it's not in the questions here, but uh, it's a, a frequently asked question that I'm sure you get on the tours as well. Uh, what is that symbol? Well, I have a number of answers for that. <laughs> uh, it, it's a Celtic knot, yeah, um, which is the, the most straightforward thing. And it's sort of, uh, it's like six, um, are they called trichreids? Yeah. It's six trichreids sort of interlinking in like a circular pattern. Mm. 
And so I always say, well, it's you know all of the Celtic knots and things. They all basically mean uh, like eternity, family, mm-hmm. lot little parts coming together to make a big whole. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot of threes coming to it. So you get life, mm-hmm. birth, redeath, this world, that world, the other world. Yeah. Three is a big thing. Mm-hmm. But I was told by an other person in the museum. Mm. I've been told two things about that. Mm-hmm. I've been told that it is a certain person's family knot. Oh, yeah. Which is that there is a. Uh, sort of like on the idea of like a clan tartan that certain families would have certain knots mm. I don't know how made yuppie that is but it, that it is someone's <laughs> family knot okay. and I've also been told that it is the symbol for the triple goddess Bridget yeah because uh, we have three goddesses all called Bridget stopped in a confusion yeah uh, that's I've, I tell that one on the tour as well purely for the punchline of uh, yes it was dedicated to the Irish goddess Bridget who was had three aspects to her, three sisters, one of them called Bridget, the other one called Bridget, and the third sister called Bridget. And of course, many of these stories associated with this pagan goddess were passed down to an Irish saint, Saint Bridget. We're very <laughs> imaginative when it comes to names here, folks. Well, I mean, in Ireland, you've got a 50% chance that the woman's called Mary. More than 50. Actually, if you, if you add in the variant of Mary, then it's mm. pretty much 50% of the population. Yeah. E- even, the, even the boys. Especially the boys. I mean, my dad's middle name is Mary. Really? Yeah, it was uh, it was quite common for like uh, of his generation. A lot of them would have Mary as their their second name. Okay. On the, on the birth cert. We, we've got a big cult of Mary thing in this country. It's got it's died down as the Catholic Church has sort of ebbed in popularity. Yeah. But uh, cult of Mary, cult of the Virgin. I wonder huge. why. I mean, the closest thing you can get to a female divine figure in a Christian cosmological mm. context. We're mm. getting off topic. Extremely. So, yes, uh, Bealtaine is often associated with cures and things. I, um, we, we got some new books in the museum and one of them was Celtic Folklore Cooking by Joanna Alicia. Alisa? Aliska? We'll say that. We'll yep. say it. Uh, and it's, um, I think it must be a, an oldish book because it, it definitely reminds me of like my home ec book from school. Oh, but it has a number of recipes, and at the back you can look. It has even when certain foods would be eaten, what mm. sort of festivals, times of year. And I'm just gonna. Um, there's a lot for Bealtaine. Okay. Yeah, there's like there's a whole thing of Bealtaine. So I was looking them up, and a lot of them, to be honest, I would not like to eat this. Uh, nah. I'm I'm quite a fussy eater. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the idea of eels. No, not particularly. Uh, you're a vegetarian, so. Oh no, they're they're well out. Yeah, but there was a summer pudding. Which, oh. when I heard summer pudding, I was thinking, like, sweet. Mm. Uh, but no, um, this is a summer pudding, which is made of um, a pound of young leaves, nettle tops, dandelion leaves, mm. ladies' mantles, those ones with sort of curly hedges, yeah. uh, three quarters of a cup of barley, Fair. salt to taste, one egg, and a spoon of butter. Not exactly what I'd call a pudding. Well, it's sort of like pudding, like a, yeah. like a black pudding or something. But yeah. what you'd do is you would... Uh, Boil up your leaves in mm. a muslin bag for about two hours, and you can tell this is Irish cooking because yeah. any vegetable you need to boil the colour out of it. <laughs> so you boil it until it's a it's a good mush. Mm-hmm. Uh, then beat it up, uh, beat your egg and your butter, fold in your your mushy leaf mixture, and then fry. Oh, okay. So it's so like a Spanish omelette thing. Fair. But uh, these particular types of leaves were said to be very good for womenly ah. womenly things and like ah. ladies mantle yes yeah. the name ladies Excellent. mantle and a lot of them are associated with sort of ladies and yeah. mother and they're gynecological herbs uh-huh. uh, specifically for heavy menstrual bleeding 
Yeah, because I've heard I know that nettles are meant to be very high in iron. Iron, yeah, nettles are nettles are great for you if yeah. you don't get stung by them. Yeah, my dad uh, used to make us nettle soup every so often. And then there's a there's a load in this there's a load of drinks and beverages. <laughs> I wonder why. Of course, Irish coffee is one of them, <laughs> um, but mead and lots mm. of sort of spiced wine. There was a particular spiced wine that apparently the they they reckon was the the thing that the Fianna were, Fianna were always talking about drinking Spanish wine. They were. They yeah. were very fond of the wine. So that, um, but me and syllabub, yeah, which is um, I made some and brought them in, which is basically bo- oh, yeah, yeah. boozy cream. Mm. So Delicious. if you're making very traditional syllabub, you uh, you get your brandy mm-hmm. or other strong thing, and you put it in a bowl with some sugar, um, some like raisins or lemon yeah. rind or whatever thing, any spice you happen to have around. Leave that to to soak up the flavour for for a while. Then take it out into the field and milk the cow straight into it. Of course, fresh from the other. Freshest as you can get. Mm-hmm. Or buy your cream in the sh- shop and whip it up and mix it in. That's it's not quite, the proper way. Yeah, it's quite tasty with shortbread. It was delicious. Yeah, that. so that's a that's a Bieltona traditional thing. Oh, okay. And I do sort of feel like I'm brewing up a potion when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm putting my, <laughs> my spices and my spirit and my orange peel in a little jar. I've been meaning to try and make some of that old mead. Mm. I've never tried real mead. Uh, I had it recently, and I've heard it described as... I'm just thinking of the Neil Gaiman description. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine the taste of honey, remove the sweetness, and that's what you have. All right. It's, it, and that kind of lives up. It's like drinking not particularly sweet uh, honeyed wine. Hmm. It's rather pleasant. All right. Uh, well, what I was loosely trying to segue uh-huh. us towards, and then I got distracted by food... As we do was cures, and uh, there's a load of different folk cures and things. Uh, Nathan, one of our storytellers, was telling us about a particularly <laughs> fabulous cure for toothache, which was you need to, uh, if you've got really bad toothache, go into a graveyard, mm-hmm. dig up a skull, mm-hmm. pull out one of the skull's teeth with your teeth, and that will cure your toothache. That tracks. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, a one cure, but... Uh, the great healer, the great cure maker in uh, Irish myth is... Dian Kecht. The worst doctor in history. For a couple of reasons. He's obviously a member of the, uh, the Tua de Danann. The, the Shining Ones. The Shining Ones, the people of the goddess Danu, or depending on how you translate it, the people of the art of poetry. But uh, supposed by some to be the pantheon of gods of pre-Christian Ireland. It's a debate. Ish. We're not getting into it. But he was, well, what he was said to be was the first healer, the first doctor in Ireland. He invented the craft of healing and doctoring. Mm -hmm. And that was very much so called upon because, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, folks, but ancient Ireland was a bit of a hellhole. Yeah, people liked fighting. Um, A lot of death. There's a whole debate about where we are, where we're not Celts, but Celts is Ah. a very... I basically... The only definition I can find to work for Celts is people who like swirly art and fighting. Yes. yes. And, and we definitely lived up to that. The only thing you can universally say is that there was a thing called the Celtic language, which seemed to have been spoken across a large section of Europe. And they, these people who spoke this Celtic language had some similar traditions. Mostly fighting. Mostly fighting. Swirly art and fighting. Yes. Because there's a lot of fighting going on, you need a doctor. Mm-hmm. So when the two of the Dunn arrived in the island, they found people already living here. Oh. 
annoying when that happens. I know. You come in, you find a new land undiscovered, and there's people living there. And as you do, you start colonising them. Yep. And to do that, you got to fight them. The history of Ireland is a history of invasions. Yep. So the first group, the group who were there before, the Fierbalg, either the, the bagmen, pe- bagmen, and they put up a decent fight. So during this big epic first battle of Moitura, they two of the Danann manage to win, but their king Nuada loses his arm to their champion of the Fierbalg Spring. And because to be a king back then, you had to be physically perfect and free from blemish or disfigurement. He now would have to step down from office. Because mm, they can't have a one-armed king. No. Now, what happened with the removal from office? Different story. We go to Nuwada. He's there. He hasn't got an arm. He's feeling pretty down on himself. But he's still very respected. He is he's... the one who led them to Ireland. Yeah, very wise. The one who set their boats on fire when they got here. As you do. <laughs> to make sure they couldn't go back. Planning. But he, he was very well respected and they wanted to make him comfortable. They wanted him to live his best life. Mm. And Dean Kecht shows up saying, I can cure you. So he goes off, so Dean Kecht goes off to variously his brother or his son or no relation, but we'll say I prefer brother, Credna, mm. uh, uh, who was the worker of precious metals or the brazier. And they construct Nuda a silver, hand, a silver arm. It had all the dexterity of a regular human hand. It had all full motion of movement. And they create this beautiful arm and they shove it right into a socket. Basically... And it, and it works. And it works. The first prosthetic limb in ancient Ireland was the silver hand. That's how Nuda got his title, Nuda of the Silver Arm. Easy to spot. Yep. Very shiny. Mm-hmm. So, he, But again, it's and very shiny. very good for wielding a sword. Very good for wielding a sword. It, it basically... An arm plus, because it's made from silver, it's not going to get damaged again. Yeah. But the tradition didn't see it that way. Yeah, they're he like, was, look, you're still... He's not mm-hmm. disfigured, but he's blemished. He's not yes. normal. So, he... The two of they were very judgy. Incredibly judgy. Incredibly judgy. More than a very, shallow. And very superficial. Very yeah. superficial. But, so, since they're so superficial, yes, he's allowed to get on with his day-to-day life, but he still can't be king. Mm. So... Now we shift attention to Dean Kecht's son, Mir. He had a, he had two kids. He had a son and a daughter. Uh, he actually had three. Three? Three. All right. He had, uh, Dean Kecht had, the, the ones who are actually important for the story is... He may have had more kids. Mir and, of course, uh, Aravid. But he also had Kean. Kean. Oh, Kean. Father of Lou. Because that's the thing. Dean Kecht is, is Lou's, Lou's grandfather, grandfather. On, his mo- um, on his father's side. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that at all. Yeah. But so he, but Miak is the one of, of importance here at the moment because he sees what his dad's done, and now Dian Kak has been teaching his kids the art of healing. Hmm. So Miak gets a bit adventurous and says, goes up to Nuda and goes, "Would you like your real arm back?" And Nuda says, "Of course, I would love my real arm back. I'll be, I'll be complete again." So he goes off. He, according to one version, goes and finds his original arm. I heard another that he basically goes around the country with a model. Yes. That's... A, a, a perfectly scale, accurate model. And it's kind of like a weird Cinderella thing. That's my favourite. That that's from the, I think it's the 16th century text of the Sons of Turin. <laughs> uh, the, tra- the tragic death of the Sons of Turin. But he goes around, he has this model, and he keeps putting it up to people's arms. He's going, nope, too long, too short. This one's just right. Hack. He finds a swineherd, and we don't hear anything about what happens to the swineherd after. I hope he was compensated. I hope he got the magic silver arm. In fairness, yeah. 
that that would be that would be nice, but I'd probably not though. Yeah. Imagine this the, the, is the swineherds often have some magic. Other they do, own, so. like tailors. You have to what, keep your eye on the swineherds. Mm. But he said, whatever way, he's got this arm now, so, but it's not attached to, mm. still not attached to the middle of it. So he takes out the silver arm and he puts the other arm, the uh, new arm against Nuda's body. Either having just found it from the swine herd or he's gotten Nuda's old one. He's been chanting, he keeps it preserved in a bag for a week. <laughs> then he mutters spells over it and burns rush, uh, bulrushes and oh. puts the dust of the burnt bulrushes over the arm. That brings it back to its pretty much its life but it's still not attached to him so he puts it up to his arm shoves it into the socket and yells uh, sinew to sinew joint to joint joint to joint sinew to sinew and he goes right so he straps it with a belt tied to the, with the side for three weeks mm-hmm. and after the three weeks it's got flesh on it again Ooh. and then he lifts it up but he, and ties it to his chest and then after the next another three weeks passed it's got the movement again so he's basically got his arm back. And he's he can happy. be king again. He's happy. He can be king. Miak is happy. He's performed the first surgery in Ireland. But Dean Kecht isn't. Yeah, he's feeling a bit upstaged. Yeah, well, because in fairness, he's, his son has just gone, Hey, Dad, you managed to give a decent prosthetic. Uh, prosthetic. I've given him his real arm back. And Dean Kecht is furious. Yeah. So as any loving father would do to his son, he tries to kill him. Of course. Of course, that's what my father would do to me. That's the logical progression. Yeah, my father tried to kill me the first time I beat him at chess. So, Dean Kecht runs runs after Miach and starts hacking at his head with a sword. But Miach is the greatest healer. In the world. So the first strike manages to cut cut his flesh, but Miach's already healed it by the time Dean Kecht is trying to swing again. Swings again, this time it's even stronger. It manages to pierce the flesh down to the bone. Miach's, that's no bother for Miach. But then there's a big thundering strike, and that one pierces right through the skin to the bone to the membrane of the brain. Yeah, but and still, that was... no, that one, that one was tough. But he managed to get oh. that one healed. But then Diagak just launches the sword at him, okay, pierces right down, in through the skin, in through the bone, in through the membrane of the brain to the brain itself. You can't heal that. Yeah, because even when Dean Kecht makes his magic healing wells, that's like he you, can cure you. Up to that level. Yeah, like in brief fun folklore and mythology fact, some people believe that the ancient Gales of Ireland believed that the soul resided in the head of the body. And that's why there was mm. something of a headhunting tradition, mm. especially in the Ulster Cycle. Yeah. But, that, but that's a digression. So he, Formiak is dead. All he'd done was try to cure Nuida. Yeah. But then we turn to his daughter, Arabeth. Now, Miak's dead, but from his body all these amazing plants start growing and they're all incredibly curative. Like with all, from each joint, and each sinew, a plant grows. There's up 365, one for each day of the year. And nice. Arafat goes around collecting them, categorizing them. She divides them. Like, okay, well, this will be this would be good for rheumatism. This would be good for arthritis. This came from his eyes. That's so good for eye problems. Yeah. This came from his ears. That's so good for ear problems. Exactly. Very logical. Exactly. So she's got it all sorted out. They're all Doctrine there. of signatures. They're all there in front of her and she's, Writing down, okay, so this one's this, this one's this. And in, in comes Dean Gecht. <laughs> and he's having none of it. He sees all these miraculous plants that can cause any known, can cure any known disease and will mean that humans will live happily and healthily for the rest of Oh, we of can't them. be having that. None of that. That means he's out of a job. He summons a great wind, blows away all the healing plants so they get muddled up. 
And yes, they're still in the world. We can't really tell which ones do what. So, find a herb, try it, might cure you, might kill you, you never know. Yeah, all thanks to Dean Keck, the man who makes a mockery of the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> well, the Hippocratic Oath was Greek. Exactly. So. Uh, on that thing of uh, the herbs getting a little bit muddled up, mm. Tom, who, who owns the museum, gave me this very interesting story, which oh. uh, comes from Witchcraft in the Aran Islands oh. uh, by Nathaniel Colligan. And it's, it's a, taken from the Journal of Royal Society of Antiquities of Ireland, um, 1895. Nice. So it's a, it's a fair old story. And it, it begins with the, this lovely image of this, um, this author, this collector, in a field, on his knees, in Kilkenny, looking for this particular mm. um, species of plant, which uh, milk vetched. I have no idea what that is, but he's yeah. looking for a milk vetched. Yeah. And this ring of confused Kerry men standing around him, <laughs> they're going, what is this fella up to? He's from Dublin, is he? Uh, yeah. And he's doing that. And one of the, the older fellas pipes up, oh, that's a dangerous thing you're doing. Mm. I know a man who got killed by that. And he, he immediately is interested, thinking, oh, local story, local oh, colour. Yeah. And these plants are poisonous. Oh, interesting thing, I didn't yeah. know. And the man and begins to tell a story yeah. that there was uh, an old woman in the area, a cunning woman, uh-huh. who was known to have, she had the gift. Yeah. And she had the evil eye as well. Oh. So people were always a little bit, you'd show her respect, but give her a right. wide berth. Oh, yeah. But it was said that she had, she could take an illness from you. Hmm. But she couldn't get rid of it. She always had to pass it on. Ah. So most people, well, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't call on her for that service because... Bit dodge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... But there was a one man who he was he was on death's door. He was about to die, and it has a phrase that, in his moment of grief, he he lost all faith in priests. And uh, An Irishman losing faith in priests. <laughs> he lost all faith in priests and in doctors. That's very serious condition he has there. Yeah. So he uh, the priests and the doctors they weren't any good for him. So he called for the kalyak, uh, and the old woman came and she looked at him with her evil eye, and she said, "Well now." I'm going to go out into the field by the crossroads. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kneel down. I'm holding your sickness. Mm. And I'm going to pluck a herb. And when I pluck that herb, whoever my eye falls on, be it my own father, <laughs> they will be struck with your illness and in 24 hours they shall be dead. So this is this is his deal. He, mm-hmm. he can be saved, but someone, he doesn't know who they will know, who they know. He doesn't know who they are, they will die. Yeah. Everything must be balanced. But he agrees to this. And so... She takes the sickness from him. She goes out, kneels down in the field by the crossroads, mm. puts her hand on the ground and waits. And as someone walks by, she looks at them and her evil eye comes out. and She plucks that herb. And sure enough, the man recovers. Mm. And the other man dies. And it, uh, it goes on in the thing that he... Uh, the, the person who collected this... Um, yeah. What's his name again? Nathaniel... Like he, he was asking, what was the herb? And no one knows. She wouldn't tell anyone what the herb she plucked ah. was, fear that they might try it themselves. And alas, by the time this story was told, that old Kaliak, well, she'd gone on her way. Mm-hmm. And some illness had caught up with that sick man. Mm-hmm. So he never got to verify the story. But I think it's a good story. It's an excellent story. But you can't, I bet you can't cure it, but you can pass it on. There, like, in, especially in 
the limited stuff I've read about the Irish magic traditions, it's very much so the sympathetic magic mm. of your an eye for an eye. Eye for an eye. You, there's no creation from nothing. You have yeah. some everything's in the universe. It's all you have to keep things nice and balanced. Yeah. Like one of the cures with the fairy trees, like you say you had a sore throat or a bad mm. chest, you'd you'd take a piece of cloth or ribbon or whatever and you'd yeah. divide it in two and you'd tie it around the afflicted part of you and tie it to the tree. Yeah. And then as that piece of cloth sort of was faded away by the yeah. wind and the rain and the sun you, so your illness would be taken from you through uh, the and uh, also and speaking of the fairy trees and getting rid of illness there's also the holy wells oh yeah they were notorious for healing things yeah a lot of the holy wells they were they were sort of sacred before yeah. christianity yeah and either the most of them have a saint but they would have most had of them a, taken over but there was one i was hearing about it earlier today that was Meant to be good for clear, uh, curing bad eyesight and making you good at football. <laughs> right. Which is, so if any GAA fans find that well. Yeah. And what was it? But what was the other one? Yeah, there was the one that was said to be good for curing madness. So, so it in, I think it was in the plains of Gautzer, the oh. mad plains. And apparently all the med, mad men of Ireland would go there to be cured. And we said that drinking from the well would cure your mental illness. And when the well's water was analysed, it had he- high quantities of lithium. Ah! Which is, for those that don't know, very good for curing depression. Uh, mm-hmm. Both regular old depression yeah, and, and manic. Yeah. yeah. So, I love those little, little bit things of... where you find... Well, a lot of the, the, like the herbs and things for... You know, that were associated with particular things, they now do have a certain... Yeah. But, like, nettles being high in iron. Yeah, but I was, I was also reading uh, one of the great folklore collectors, uh, Kevin Dana, here on Folk Cures, and he was mentioning how a lot of the folk cures have basically just become medicine. Yeah, pretty much. People used to eat the bark of a willow to help cure pain. And now we pain. have aspirin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on trees, again, though, what I found was... Uh, Liminal spaces can be good for mm, healing. Yeah. Uh, passageways, doorways, Ways. and uh, on the waterways, th- wells. Possibly on the theory of their pa- their since liminal spaces, they're somewhat connected to the other world of mm-hmm. the chi, and therefore your illness might be transferred there where it's mm-hmm. no bother. Oh, I'd be a bit, I'd be a bit wary about sending your illness to the chi. In fairness, but whatever, it seems going through a liminal space is handy. So people would say like, oh, if you need to be cured of pain, like go through a doorway mm-hmm. or gaps in trees and one of the famous ones was sending young children with rickets through small openings and trees oh god so i just had the horrible image of this poor child just being shoved through a tree poor tiny tim <laughs> at oh, least to be able to walk oh that's there. a new theory for who put bella in the witch elm no which uh for those who don't know um if you're a true crime that that might come up in the 1940s they mm. found the body of this woman stuffed inside the hollow of a witch elm and one of her hands had been cut off and been buried near there and they they couldn't identify her Uh, there was a war going on records were sparse and also no Mm -hmm. like dna or anything like that and she quite decayed down yeah but then this graffiti started showing up people sort of writing on walls in chalk who put bella in the witch elm Mm. and it developed this whole urban legend and there's there's theories that she was a she was part of a spy ring that this was someone trying to make a hand of glory that this was just you know common or garden murder and they stuffed her down a tree but I don't know maybe someone was trying to cure her rickets maybe well maybe her arm got hacked off and she was trying to get it reattached by going through this tree maybe maybe Uh, who can say yep 
And uh, on that, we're going to finish up. We hope you have a very happy Beltana. Very happy very May happy Day. Very happy May Day. If someone does chop off your arm, we hope that... You well, as my dad would say, if you're in doubt of what will cure you, plantain. Plantain, you use to prescribe that for anything. What's plantain? It's a small plant, kind of like the dock leaf. You, mm-hmm. you Basically, what you do, you get the plant, uh, rub it in your hands together, mm-hmm. uh, spit on it, saliva, mm-hmm. get some bit of moisture, make it a nice paste. Rub it on anything, cures cuts, bruises, uh, apparently cures headaches, and my, we used to joke that, yeah, feeling toothache, get some plantain. Bruise, get some plantain. Decapitation, get some plantain. Well, I mean, if you know someone who was decapitated and they were cured by plantain... It can't hurt. Please, please get in touch with us. Or if you have any questions, queries, <sighs> any weird cures that were always you know, brought up when you were, yeah. you were growing up, or your neck of the woods weirdest cure your parents forced on you when you were a child you can contact us on twitter at leprechaunmuseum underscore dot ie we're on instagram at leprechaunmuseum i think we're the only leprechaun museum and hashtag ask a storyteller we'd love to hear from you happy bealtana very bealtana folks